Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed is a weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 124 is recorded live August 2nd, 2012. I prefer 2015. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson, and here's a few of the articles we're going to have in the news this week. We have boat passengers get an angry letter, reducing under-nut-water noise for Santa, and excavating of some shipwrecks. But before we get onto that, I'd like to welcome my co-host for this week. We have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, thank you. Excellent. And then we also have Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? Oh, I'm as happy as a fly in an outhouse. Oh, that's great. Just just a great visual there. I'm I'm, I'm picturing that must make a, a fly really happy. And, you know, here we are in August, August 2nd. If you haven't been diving, what have you been doing? The summer is almost over with. I always, it, it feels like as soon as we get that, the official start of summer, and you can see 4th of July coming around the corner, that 4th through August 1st seems to go in a blink of an eye. Okay, well, let, let's go ahead and start with the first article we have this week, and it's a follow-up to one, and we have boat passengers get letters, and for the chat room, you get the bonus of having the, the news live, if I remember to paste it in there. I'll try to remember, remind you. <laughs> so this one is from, let's see here, I don't want to fit my screen, out of Horry County, South Carolina. A lawyer with Prenner and Marvel representing Coastal Scuba sent letters to three people asking them to use caution when speaking to the media. This comes on the heels of one of them sitting down with News Channel 15 and talking about the death of a woman who died while diving with the company last Tuesday. The letter said, should any investigation determine that the vessel's equipment was in proper working condition and or that any deficiency was a result of operator error, any public comments to the contrary would be defamatory and Coastal Scuba will pursue any and all available remedies. David Marvel wrote the letter and says he sent it because he wanted to talk to them about what happened that day. But a dive master who's also in the boat did not receive the letter. This was Kevin Kirk, uh, who's a professional diver. He says he was obligated to file a report with the Professional Association of Diving Instructors, Patty, about the event surrounding the death. He also shared what he says happened on the day. And if you remember, this is the one uh, that we covered last week. I believe it was where they had the nurses. Yeah. He said, I was extremely surprised that they were not a working O2 on the vessel. We've been taught and trained O2 can be a big benefit. Would it have been benefit in this situation? I cannot say whatsoever. He added that he may get a letter as well for now speaking with the uh, News Channel 15 about the incident. It said, I feel like there are some concerns. I don't think we can say exactly because we don't know what caused the death or actually what happened to Mrs. Murphy, but there were enough concerns that felt like they needed to be spoken of. Now, so they, they set threatening letters, but wouldn't you think if you were a nurse and the hoses disintegrated in your hand that you're pretty safe in, in talking to the media saying that's what happened? If you say what you found and it's correct, I don't know how they could say anything about it. Right. What happened to freedom of speech? Well, exactly. And, and you weren't doing it to cause harm or damage or to be inflammatory. You're doing it because that's what happened. And you have firsthand knowledge. I mean, well, one has to be deliberate and malicious, too, as I recollect. Yeah, yeah. There's some economy on your feelings, I don't think there's... And the attorneys are probably doing their job and trying to represent their clients. But, you know, we as citizens, when we get these letters, we need to be not afraid of saying something just because of a lawsuit. Let them them sue. So it's a tragic event. um, And I just don't like the idea that people are pushing information underground that probably needs to be said. Yeah, I agree. It's, you know... You can report what you saw, what you heard, what you observed. <clears throat> as long as you don't give opinion, you don't have anything to worry about. Uh, also, helium. This is kind of a follow-up more to Rich's program, Divers Sink. Metro Detroiters react to helium shortage. Now, that we're not specifically talking about divers. So we're just talking about people in Metro Detroit. Uh, 
as as we know is that helium has been hard to find. Many stores that used to sell helium balloons are no longer selling them. But what I thought was interesting is you can still buy the the little party tanks and fill your own. Those party tanks are not pure. They've been cut. They've got enough helium just to float the balloons. So oh. It's diluted. <clears throat> I tried getting my gas supplier to give me a tank of helium at the beginning of the season, and they came back to me and told me they were not accepting any new customers and weren't sure they'd be able to supply the customers they already had. And that seems to be the message that we're getting is that they're, the suppliers are really rationing and they're making choices uh, for their business. So if all you buy is helium, then don't count on being able to get it. But if you're buying you know, truckloads of oxygen and CO2 and acetylene, then you may get some helium along with that. Mm-hmm. Some of the comments were, uh, you know, the, it said it's very sad. The kids are going to be sad to hear this one person said. Another said, uh, I'm not at all concerned. I don't use balloons anyway. Another person said, why, why do you need balloons with helium in them? You just tape them up <laughs> and then stack electricity. But none of this happens to work for divers. Uh, one of the suppliers or the party supplier says that they've they've been through this cycle before and they're hoping it's just a fad and that it will come back and there'll be helium again. Now I hope so because I'd really like to get into doing some trimix and uh, heliox. Yeah, it, I, I'm kind of in the same boat. I want to eventually get into that sort of diving and I don't like the fact that we can't get a gas that is used for those purposes. Now something I also thought was interesting was uh, in the uh, called the financial papers, they were saying that the helium, not helium, but the other gases and, and liquids that are processed with propane and natural gas aren't bringing as much money as they used to. And I, from my understanding is that helium was one of those gases. So it makes me wonder if there's something else going on here. Are they trying to drive up the prices by shortening all the industry, not processing them? Are they processing them? Because I guess how some of the refineries work is you, you used to be able to, if you were uh, an organization that had the gas coming out of the ground, they would use the other butane and propane and other gases that came al- along with it as part of your payment. But they're no longer going to be doing that because they're not making enough. Hmm. Next up, the Santas are uh, complaining that it's too noisy underwater. The Newport Aquarium is looking to a group of UC audiologists to study the effects of underwater noise on scuba divers. Dr. Peter Scheffler says some of the scuba sandas are complaining that working underwater during the holiday season is noisy, and others say they can't understand what they're hearing. Christmas music is piped in. There's crowd noise. There's water pumps and more. University of uh, Cincinnati doctorate student of audiology, Justin Berkwinkle, and others are conducting a series of tests at the Newport Aquarium to determine just how loud is too loud. Uh, they say they have numbers for above ground conditions, but they don't have anything that really speci- specifies for underwater. So what they're doing is they're, they're taking uh, recording equipment near the aquarium tanks to speak That's underwater. Lost your, audio. lost your audio for a minute. Did you? Yeah, Sorry about that. Back. Okay. So uh, what, what point did you lose me at? Uh, we started mentioning what the doctors were saying about having readings. Oh, yeah. They said above uh, grounds, above the ground, or which I think it means above water, we have criteria which workers can be exposed to noise and they need protection. We're trying to develop the same kind of a protocol for workers underwater. Uh, using a table of recording equipment near the aquarium tank, a speaker underwater to protect different pitches like middle C. Uh, they said test take the first, uh, no, the first test. They said the test take hours. Two divers uh, have nothing on their heads. They put neoprene hood on, like the scuba sandas wear, and lastly they put in earplugs. So we're doing this because we want to get enough data so that next Christmas rolls around, we have scuba Santa can act as a consultant to the aquarium about making the divers comfortable while doing the scuba Santa show. Now, Mac, I thought this was this kind of played into what you were talking about last week. We're using a device for recalling. And when you think about an aquarium, you've got nothing but a long speaker, that whole entire wall. Yeah, I was trying to anticipate what they're talking about. And I think since you're in a big aquarium, the aspect of noise integration is very high. Yeah. Because got... that whole wall acts yeah. like a, an amplifier or at least a, a pickup mic. Yeah. Well, then... Also, it seems I don't know what the expectations. I never expect to hear stuff underwater, but maybe maybe for some reason they are. 
Now they they don't use full face masks, do they? Yeah, they said they were getting all sorts of extra information, which again they're in a closed area. We're normally out and not enclosed. Yeah. I know if I'm working like in a four bay area in a plant, you've got pump noises, you've got that. Yeah. Well, well, maybe what they're talking about is uh, you know, kind of like when you're at the the pet shop and they say don't knock on the aquariums. Maybe that's what the sandas are experiencing. Mm-hmm. It's got to be a unique a unique type condition. Yeah. And I've really not noticed it being a lot noisy, noisy when you're, you know, doing normal work in a, in a river or something like that. You can hear stuff, but, you know, other than explosions and items like that that can really damage you, you don't feel it or, you know, it doesn't bother me. Yeah. Yeah, we always hear the, you know, the boat zooming across on the surface. But it might be something that's becoming more common. You look at these aquariums now, and it seems like as a kid, and even some of them I've seen recently, they're really you know, a steel wall or something three feet up, and then they have two or three feet of window, and then, you know, it's more structure. Now we're seeing where you've got 10, 15 feet high windows that run the whole length of the one aquarium wall. So a lot more surface area exposed to sound. I don't know why using acoustic mics wouldn't be able to pick up sounds, and then they could make that determination on what they're recording. Yeah, because really it should be something, they need something that would measure the pressure in the water that sound from outside is making. Well, I'd be more concerned with the DB level than the, the background noise. I mean, background noise is, you know, you walk in and like in an airport, you always hear noise, noise, noise. It's not painful noise, but you can't, it's so much background, it's hard to have a conversation. That sounds like what they're talking about, as opposed to damaging noise that it really messes with your mind or your ears and your body. I'm just trying to see in the chat room if they can hear us. Uh, we'll keep going. Um, next article up is underwater electrical outlets put in place for a cabled observatory project. So I keep wondering, uh, you know, this, this, this one's going to be a little deep for us to take advantage of. It says the first U.S. cabled ocean observatory reached a milestone on July 4th with installation of a node 9,500 feet deep off the coast of Oregon. Uh, they liken it to an electrical outlet on the seafloor that provides Internet connectivity. The node was spliced into a network of cable segments some 560 miles that were laid in the summer of 2011. Six more of these primary nodes, each about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle, are being are being installed this summer. Smaller secondary nodes will be installed in 2013 with a transfer of power and communications from the primary nodes to experimental sites. The project is designed to deliver real-time ocean observations for 25 years. It is part of the National Science Foundation Oceans Observations Initiative, the construction and early operations of the Cable Observatory, known as Regional Scale Nodes, component is led by the University of Washington. The nodes are, in many ways, the brains of the system designed to distribute power into a communication and network of ocean observing sensors, instruments, and moorings. They're scheduled to begin operating in 2013 and fully completed in 2014. The cabled observatory will provide real-time information on ocean phenomena, such as underwater volcanoes, gas hydrite deposits, major ocean currents, and rich environments of marine plants and animals. Does anyone with connection to the Internet will be able to see what's happening in the study sites? I'm having a hard time figuring out really what they're doing. What they're doing is bringing the cables from the bottom, putting them on top of a boat or a barge. They cut the sensor or the line. The deck splice it, uh-huh. and they put it back in. And it, it's not like they're down on the bottom doing it. They've got to be real careful when they bring it up from 9,000 feet. And you, you can see how much slack and scope you got. But they do the work on the surface. Then they got to reposition it. And it's, it's a real balancing act to do all that. If they must have to, when they lay the cable, put some slack in. Because I imagine this must be the same thing when they have to do a repair or a splice. Yeah. So they must occasionally, like, drop a loop in the water or zigzag somehow. Right, because that would be a little hard to pick up, you know, two miles of slack if you don't have any. Yeah, because I was kind of wondering how it got down, you know, how their Volkswagen Beetle, so to speak, made its way down to the cable so they could get their connection. Actually, think about that. That's four miles, two miles down, two miles up. Yeah. That's true. That's, that's a lot of cable. Of course, when they laid it, they probably did the same thing, but then you didn't have to necessarily leave the slack in. You just let it flop down there. But So now they got this node. Does the node have cameras built to it? Is that what they're trying to say? I don't have a clear on what they're talking about from that aspect. Connecting the nodes to the cable segments. So they do the cable retrieving from the seafloor, testing, cutting, on-deck splicing. Huh. Okay, well, sounds like something I hope that works. 
Well, the, did you go to the uh, interactive motions? That's that. Uh, we were talking about the nodes. No, I didn't. Uh, hang on a second. But I can't figure out where I'm at. I don't think I have my notes here. Here we go. There you go. Okay. It's interesting because there you can see pictorials of what they're talking about. Pictures. We love pictures. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is really like somebody's uh, talking about the burial inspection program. Then they do the milestones, and then they show the pictorials of the burial of the nodes, what they look like. Okay. And they do look about the size of a Volkswagen, and this happens to be yellow. Quite interesting, actually. A lot of work on it. A lot of money, too. Oh, big time. Big time. And what's, I mean, I love the ocean. I love knowing all this stuff. But as they say, you need to follow the money. People aren't doing this out of the goodness of their heart. Oh, no. There's something to be gained from this. And someday we're going to go, oh, that's what it was. My thought is that they're trying to figure out some way where they can find where the minerals are. Yeah, but you're right. That's about the size of a Volkswagen. Uh, I don't even necessarily see why they need that. So somehow stuff must be able to connect to somehow attach to that. There's got to be more to it. You know, like that by the shape of it, an underwater robot can go and somehow plug in. Is it like a charging-based docking station? Well, it's the one where they're talking about slicing nodes, PN1, Bravo, into segments two and three. You can see the cable almost looks like a flex cable going into the device with an outlet cable coming down. Only thing I can figure is like boosters. Like if you have a cable and you have an amplifier, the boosters will then help the signal. Unless that's what they're doing, putting boosters on well, the could be. I mean, you could do that. That's uh, if it was fiber optic cables and they needed, and they were having, they want because you could do if you because. I had a sister company that used to lay fiber optic cables in the ground, and their thinking was that you only had to lay the fiber optic cable once, and then whenever you fill you filled it up, meaning it was at capacity, you could just upgrade the sensors on either end of the cable, and you could double or quadruple or quintuple the signals. Because what you can do is uh, you have light running through it; they can change the frequency of other lights, and they can increase that. But the difference is, is that when they first put the cable in the ground, the the equipment on the end might be ten thousand or twenty thousand dollars. The next level, which allows you to run more data through it, you're now up to about one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and then you can even get to the millions. But yeah. you're not worried about that point because <clears throat> you filled up the cable, and people are paying you for the data, so they make money on it. Yeah. So that's what this could be too. It could be that they're uh, this is to boost signals going across. And it's just not that simple, is it? If you notice, that's a, uh, the interactive ocean, that's a blog. And towards the bottom, if you look at each of those pictorials, that's a segment, that's a day, that's, a, that's like a daily blog. And there's actually over six different pages like this one. And if you start iterating through it, you'll find out all sorts of interesting things you're doing and accomplishing with this. So those, it ain't no simple answer to this one. No, no. So there's there's something. Either they're doing it for knowledge, but there's there's an end game to this. Well, like here, it uh, today was the final ropes dive of the series, ending with the exciting dive in the newly hypothermal field discovered at the beginning of Lag 2. Hmm. It's, it's quite involved. But this kind of goes in with all the submarines we're seeing, all these, all of a sudden there's this rush of submarines that can get to the deepest parts of the ocean. Now, if you combine this with the Millennium Falcon, you know, now, now we got something to talk to the aliens. <laughs> well, from undersea electric outlets, we're going to move into excavating shipwrecks. South Carolina students will be excavating a, shrip, a shipwreck at Harbortown. This is Hilton Head, South Carolina. Team of University Maritime Archaeologists will be on the beach near Harbor Town on Hilton Head Island uh, Friday, and that's probably been a couple weeks ago, um, to help students to get an unidentified shipwreck to reveal its secrets. Uh, archaeologists Ashley Deming and technicians Carl Naylor and Joe Betty will show students how to excavate and record the remains of an abandoned wooden vessel. That was reported to state archaeologists in late 2010. The students are adult scuba divers who are taking a four-day sport diver archaeology management program course offered through USC's uh, South Carolina Institute for Archaeology and Anthropology and the College of Arts and Sciences. Can they make that name any longer? The vessel is located in the beach of uh, 
Calabogue Sound was reported to state archaeologists in late 2010 by Sea Pines resident Sally Peterson and her brother Peter Thompson. State archaeologists visited the site located in a small beach not far from the 18th piece of Harbortown Golf Link. So what's this link, Mac, that you sent? Well, that happens to be a picture of what they're doing, and that's in inland. It's on the beach. It's out. It's, it's when you say rubble wreck, <laughs> this this is way beyond rubble wreck, and it's like I'm not sure the what they're really going to get from it, other than practice of identifying what they did have. Uh, if you go to that, you're going to see a picture of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you your own conclusion from what I said. Yeah, I saw that. Um, so yeah, I mean it, it. It like you said, it's it's not they're it's not what we would. You know, you put that 30 feet underwater, and it becomes much more interesting, though. Yeah, you know, only if you dig it out like they're doing. Golly, that's yeah. the one we know about. <laughs> yeah. I'll bet it's a lot easier to dig out on the beach than it is. I damn well bet it is. The visibility is better. Yeah. Now, now here's the important no question. In South Carolina, can you drink on the beach? Can you drink on the beach? Yeah. Sure. Drink water, Pepsi. <laughs> so I'm going to say if you had rum or beer, uh, you know, that would definitely be much more exciting. Well, it's off a Hilton Head, so they're probably having some fun too. Yeah, they're saying uh, the the and they'd even say in the article that the the exercise is primarily just to put some uh, numbers to paper and is good experience. Well, they go out there and play with the little the city of Green Bay. That's probably more wreckage than this is. Yeah, yeah. I even zoomed up that picture trying to see what it looks like. Huh? Makes you wonder how long it's been there. Is this something that the the surface came off? Well. Take a look what you had on the beach uh, last winter. Yeah. Right off of Silver Beach. And it's not there right now. And it sure didn't move by itself. <laughs> it's covered up again. Oh, so you, you, you just think it's covered up then? Say again? So the one that was on uh, Silver Beach, you think it was just covered back up again? Well, nobody moved it. That was one huge, heavy piece of wood. I mean, there's not a chance that it dried up and then became buoyant and then storm came and floated it out? I don't think so. <laughs> Okay, well, that does it for the news part. Uh, we Can I do... jump into something real quick? Sure. In your notes, you had something from DEMA. What was that about? Oh, that was DEMA. They send me about three or four press releases a week, and this one was a letter that uh, DEMA sent to the United States Coast Guard, uh, U.S. Department of Homeland Security on Maritime Safety Advisory. Uh, it was distributed on June 21, 2012. The letter submitted by Tom Ingram, DEMA's executive director expressing concerns regarding the advisory and requesting the Coast Guard withdraw it due to its inaccurate and misleading premise and the confusion it created for operators. And here's a quote from the letter. It says, some of the recommendations stated in the advisory conflicted with a long-established and existing industry practice and create confusion similar to that created by the federal regulatory OSHA efforts, which conflict with the Coast Guard's regulations relating to commercial diving. This is from Tom Ingram, Executive Director of DEMA. He says, this creates an intolerable level of confusion for the dive industry. The advisory was addressed to passenger vessel operators, owners, and crew members providing commercial transport and support services to recreational divers, reminding them of safety responsibilities to themselves and their passengers. It also provided recommendations and lessons learned from recreational diving casualty investigations and promoted awareness of industry best practice. He says, as an alternative to this advisory, DEMA requested the Coast Guard include future communications that recommend that passenger vessels supporting recreational dive activities follow the protocols outlined by the recreational diving industry and acknowledge experts in this field, which have prov- which has proven extremely effective in providing a high level of safety for divers. DEMA has a strong interest in conferencing with Coast Guard representatives about conclusions that were reached and how the dive industry and the Coast Guard can work together to serve a common goal for diver safety. So I do remember earlier in the year that there was something that the Coast Guard put out, and I think instantly DEMA was kind of grousing about it. Uh, I don't actually have a copy of what it is the Coast Guard sent. I do know that if you're going to be working as a diver in a state, you've got to be careful what you do because you've got OSHA, then you've got Michigan OSHA or my OSHA, then you've got the FSAR, uh, you have the standards set by the government to look at. Then you'll have those who also have diving programs, such as the Coast Guard. And if you look at the requirements, they're not always the same for each state based on their state's interpretation and 
type of diving they're doing there. Yeah, I went to the Michigan ones, and that was quite involved. Well, if you try to put, if they're talking about, I would assume, like uh, the ships that give you recreational diving, you know, the uh, courses off the ship mm -hmm. on a Caribbean cruise or something. If you look at the requirements for divers commercially using scuba, that's different than if you're doing commercial operation, meaning training recreational divers off a boat. One would think you would use the padding, Maui, the accepted recreational requirements as opposed to interspacing some of the requirements that you would have for commercial divers or using scuba. Oh, certainly. That's, I see some confusion can come about. Oh, that would be easy because uh, commercial operations require, have requirements for protocols and also for uh, uh, don't they have to have access to chambers too? Well, if you look at the one just for um, colleges who do, I'm trying to think of the term, my mind just escaped to me right now, but um, when the colleges do diving, the archaeological one, they have their own classification for divers and own requirements. Yes. And they're much more stringent generally than recreational divers because they have a different outlook about what they're doing. I mean, they have protocols, like you said, if you're doing diving for the university, you have to have their certifications. You have to follow their protocols. And there's a lot of paper documentation. There's like for recreational, you don't necessarily have to have a physical, but for the college one, you have to have a physical. Oh yeah. And, and that's where depending on what you're doing, you can get a lot of crossover. And this must be what they're talking about. They're adding too much to something that's not a commercial venture per se. Not commercial from the aspect I'm going to teach you to dive, but commercial from a different perspective. Yeah. Well, we'll have to look at that, see what there's a little bit more in that. But it's good. I like seeing these press releases that DEMA's doing something for their members. I liked the one on insurance last week. Oh, that's right. I did send you one on that. We didn't talk about it in the show, did we? No, that's scary, though. <laughs> How much it will cost? Let me see if I can find any of those. Like I said, I get quite a it, – they must be in a – uh, yeah, DEMA announces change in healthcare PPAAC. This one was uh, the press release from DEMA on July 23rd. Says after more than two years of U.S. Supreme Court issued the final ruling on the constitutionality of uh, PPACA on June 28th to help FEMA members understand the effects of the new regulation, DEMA has obtained some of the more critical elements of the law which have direct or indirect impact on DEMA member companies. The court ruled the law's individual mandate was valid. That was one aspect of the PPACA which could have impacted the constitutionality of the entire law. Thus, the entire law stands. The individual mandate requires all Americans to either purchase health insurance or be fined by the federal government. The court's decision leaves... It's not leaves, a fine, it's a tax. <laughs> the court's decision to leave most other aspects of the laws intact means PPACA will go forward as planned. In the ruling, the court stated the main claim used to argue against implementation of the law that Congress should not impose a financial penalty on Americans to force them to purchase health insurance was actually unconstitutional. However, the court also said that it would simply read the law to say that Congress would impose a tax on individuals if they did not buy health insurance. In other words, finding someone was wrong but taxable. Indeed, such it's Congress not already... What's that? not a tax, it's a fine. <laughs> Indeed, since Congress already has virtually unlimited power to tax, imposing an individual mandate tax was deemed constitutional even though it was not Congress's state intent when it was created the law. With this decision, many private companies have increased administrative paperwork requirements. The addition health care costs may increase for your company. It is these issues which provide companies to be considered as this measure takes full effect over the next 18 months. It is critical for each business to review the following changes in detail with their appropriate accounting professionals determine its actual impact on individual companies. So they and then they go into detail on the different requirements. The W two reporting requirement, which goes in effect January second, uh, January first, two thousand twelve. Employer mandates, which are in effect of July, uh, January first, twenty fourteen. And the tough thing is, I think there's going to be many diving companies who are going to be just about. You know, if you're an equipment manufacturer, you're probably going to fall into these requirements. A small single location dive shop probably will be exempt from some of them for a while. Um, 
you know, larger chains won't be. So, and this goes on and on and on. It is scary. So well, that's for another podcast, but uh, dive shops, dive operators have to, are just affected like this, like the rest of us are. Is the chat room harassing me about dry suit again? Again or still? Still. It never still. stops. No. <laughs> no. I think we ought to get Congress to pass an act that says every time they pass a new tax, they have to pay a tax, an additional tax. Well, the congressional tax tax. Well, the other thing on this is uh, how, how about that they, they didn't get anything that everybody else doesn't get? There you go. Everything applies to them that applies to us, period. Yeah. You know, which, how many of us get to have a job for four years and have, you know, unlimited retirement and health benefits for the rest of our life? I don't know of anybody. Yeah, I'm, I'm working. I doubt I'm going to have any benefits. <laughs> okay, let's see. We've got uh, some potentially cool scuba gear. Good. Great new ways to spend money. Oh, yeah. You know, it's interesting. Did you read that one already? Yeah. It's interesting, but excuse me. Why not just keep your freaking flag with you? Then you don't have to raise a flag. Well, that's what I would think. I mean, the way we, we've been diving is when we're going to do a shore dive and we don't have a boat flying the flag, we bring the flag with us and it's on a float. It's supposed to. You're supposed to be within 100 feet of a flag. And if you can't see the flag, it don't count, people. I mean, if the flag suddenly pops up in the middle of a boat, they're at fault. I don't think so. Yeah. For, for those of you who are listening to podcasts and not seeing the, the link that we just pasted in, what this gentleman has invented is it's a pole, and one end of the pole is looks to me like what the dog pound uses to capture dogs with, which I guess is how they some people capture lobsters, which is I kind of think mm-hmm. what's a sport like a snare. snare, yeah, like a snare, a snare, little loop, and then the other end you pull a cap off and there's a dive flag. So I guess the idea is that when you're coming up, you rate and they show a little drawing, you raise a dive flag and people can see you. Yeah, it seems to me that if you take your dive flag with you, uh, what's the problem? I guess. And you can still have a snare. Do people just not like to have dive flags? Cause it, it, I sure wouldn't have staked my whole freaking life on building those. <laughs> I can see everybody in the Great Lakes trying to have one. Yeah, we've got lots of lobsters to snare. <laughs> and the rivers all. I don't know, I'm being a wet blanket, but that just doesn't sound logical to me. Yeah, I... Yeah. I guess if you're diving deep without a flag and you're going to surface, but you're, you know, you're, you're taking your life in your hands the whole time you're diving until you finally decide to surface. Well, how about when and, we talk and if about you get hit by a boat, it's going to be the boater's fault. Well, how about when we do the St. Clair dives, you know, where we've talked about that, where you go into the flag, then stay along the bottom and you come out where there's another flag later on down. Correct. I mean, you could have this kind of tucked under your arm and if you had to pop up with it. But what that going to going to do for you? Those boats are not going to stop. You you mean that yeah. 500 foot freighter is not going to see this three foot flag? And even if he does, he ain't going to stop. <laughs> yeah. And it's known you have the you have the you know don't dive there if you can't dive the right way. Take that bailout bottle so when you screw up, you know you can get back to the side. You come up in the middle of there and you're screwed. And it ain't a healthy place to do that. Yeah. I'm- I mean, I'd like to dive there, so I hope nobody else gets up there and gets chewed up by the props. Let's say clear. Yeah. Well, so far, we we haven't lost anybody. Knock on wood, so. Not that anybody's reported. No? Yeah, there you go. Well, it just depends how big the bits are when you're done. Mm. Well, you can always blame it on the mafia. They must have, must have come out of the barrel or the suitcase. Hey, look, I found a, a tank lying on the bottom. Okay, so that's potentially cool scuba gear. And then we just have a plethora of dive videos. The first one kind of goes with this, whether we talked about the underwater node. Uh, this one's from the University of Michigan and their underwater robotics program. And that video is about three and a half minutes, and uh, it's worth taking a look at. Uh, some of the things they're doing is, is interesting. With they're they're making an underwater robot that is capable of an autonomous travel, and it learns by locations of the bottom of the ship how to find its way around. Kind of like as we would as a diver, you kind of go, oh well, that's propeller, so I'm at the back, or here's some other element, and I know where that is. That's on the port side, so it starts to learn where it is, and it can adjust its pattern. 
the idea is that instead of putting divers in the water to look for explosives or damage on a vessel, they can drop one of these in. Um, so kind of like the underwater version of uh, the drone airplanes that uh, we've been seeing around. Now, Mac, did you happen to get a, a chance to look at the other things that the University of Michigan is doing with their robotics and what their stated goals are? Uh, no, I have not. I did get really interested in the monkey dive video, though. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll get to that one. That one, that one's interesting. But <laughs> what, what, what the University of Michigan was is trying to do is they want a fleet of autonomous vehicles running around the Great Lakes doing research. And when I saw that, what I thought would really be cool would be how many shipwrecks could be located with these autonomous vehicles. And how many years after they found them in Italian? Well, that's that's why you get involved with them, so that somehow you get early access to the information. Uh, whistleblower. I mean, insider? <laughs> insider. Well, they got the buoy here at the new plant, so they, they must have to need some divers or people to help work with them. So I thought about They gave some contact information, so I thought about calling up a couple of these professors and seeing what they've got to say. Maybe we can get them on the show. So we had Ryan uh, Eustace, uh, professor of Naval Architecture and Marine Engineering. And he has quite a few projects that he's been working on. Okay. And then by popular demand, uh, Max talking about the monkey dive video. That's a lot more interesting. Than yeah. And this one is uh, Jitka from the Mali V, who you've heard us talk about. So if you're into Jitka, Jitka yep. So Jitka. Yep. So if you're into uh, tech diving or rebreathers, uh, she runs a dive charter operation, the Shipwreck Explorers, and sh- uh, the boat's called the Molly V. And uh, she actually, in one of her recent dives, went out and did a monkey dive. But if you're not familiar with a monkey dive, is it's diving with just essentially the tank and regulator, you know, no BC and, and uh, limited or proverbially no weights. And the way she accomplishes this is by ditching the wet suit and dry suit and just goes down into with some uh and it does look cold doesn't it guys hello you're memorized by the video i'm mesmerized by the video <laughs> that's what good visibility is huh <laughs> so 55 degrees is what the water temp was it's a very interesting video hard to watch it though without the sound coming out without muting our own you had to turn the sound off I saved it. I'm going to go back and look later. <laughs> you look later. Now, is that how we should dive Max Wreck? You can. Very interesting video. I mean, she doesn't have a lot of body fat either. No. A lot of what? A lot of body fat to keep her warm. No. no. If you get her to come dive with us this weekend, I might be able to break away from my other engagements. <laughs> is that what we need to do? We need to call, we need to call her up and... Have her come. I'm sure there, you can get her to dive with us. We just got to charter her boat. Yeah. A bigger boat. A bigger boat. Yeah. I, I think we could get the party time. I'd about the party time. <laughs> That's another insider joke. If, you, if you're not from the area, you don't know what the party time is. It's a double-decker barge that probably holds, what, 70 people? Easy. Yeah. They do perch fishing from it a lot. We could get Yitka to come over and take us out on some wrecks, or we could go over there and dive on some wrecks with now, her. Now, th- that would be that'd be nice. She's, there's some in uh, Wisconsin that I know Kirk has talked about going over there and doing some diving. Oh, my goodness. I haven't been on Facebook for a few hours, and it's just gone crazy. What I want to do is I want to get that link to uh, the video that Jim just posted from last week, and we'll put that in the chat room. So we've been talking about Max Wreck. Yeah, I finally shot some video that would give people a one-minute overview of what this wreck is and the allure of moving sand. The potential is what that shows. Yeah, okay. that sure does. I mean, it's just what lies. You know, we, Mac and I have done presentations called "What Lies Beneath" for a couple of years, and that really fits to this wreck. What lies beneath that sand? Yeah, that the video at about nine or ten seconds in, and, and so if you're watching the video along with us, so just if you if you're listening to the podcast, pause the podcast, click on the link from the show notes, which hopefully I'll have up by the time you're you're listening to this, and you can also get to it on the Facebook page at Scuba Obsessed. We've got a link to it. Get about ten seconds in and pause it, and that is when we've been talking about the windless. And what that is, that's from, if you were on board the vessel, I'd imagine that would be like you were staying in front of the front mast, wouldn't it be? 
this. You'd be standing in front of the fronting towards the bow. You've got the windlass, which in, in the video is actually, I'm imagining that has come loose and collapsed a little bit, like the either the deck collapsed below it or something. And it's shifted about three or four feet to the port side to the left. Yeah. And there's actually two, I don't know, would you call it a ring that the windlass mm-hmm. would go through? And you can see one yeah. of them real clear in this photo. And then on, on the bottom side, and it's very well carved and detailed, which is where the, uh, I don't know, what do, you, what do you call that that would be on a windlass that you would have well, holes? You've, you've got the, that's why I describe it as they cut wedges out, and you have a paw, a piece of wood that would fit into the wood. Another thing to think about, if you've ever seen a, a longer pipe that they use for rolling logs where you've got a, a straight pike pole and then there's a hook that kind of goes off the top of it. And you would think about, you know, you use this hook, so you roll it and then pull it back and roll it and pull it back. Uh, that's probably what they used to turn this windlass. Yeah, that's what I was, that's what I envision when I look at something like this. And then you can yeah, just this is, this is kind of one. This uh, appears to be a version, you know, the original, the first earlier windlasses had hand spikes in them where there had holes uh, in the windlass itself. You drop a hand spike into it, like a four foot long two by two or three by three, and you'd pull down on that, and then you'd take it out and move it to the next hole. And then the next version after that is this type of windlass that we've got where I believe it had that, uh, you know, a uh, like a logger's pole mm-hmm. that you would use to, to turn it. Yeah, because you can see the notches in there, and yep. they're not all the way through, so it's not like something you would actually, have, like it would just be a pole that you'd put in and then turn it. It's got to be something that catches or like ratchets. And then as you, if you go back a little bit further in the video at one second or three seconds and look to the right side, which is going to be the starboard side of the, the vessel, you can see it's actually the, there's a, we have a mooring chain on it, and that chain is attached to the anchor. So let's see what else we've got on this video here. The picture shows the sand really covered up a lot of stuff from last year. Yeah. Yeah. And it's nice. This, this is some excellent video. As you get close, it's like a, every time I, I see something I want, then you went to something else. <laughs> So about well, 12 or 13. Let's do a quick flyover of this thing to, you know, give people a quick view of what was there. Yeah. So you then, put a plug in, that's a GoPro camera. That's doing darn good at 75 feet ambient light. Yeah. Yep, 75 feet. Yeah. And then on the, like from about 15 seconds to about 40 seconds, we're actually going down the port side of the vessel heading from the bow to the stern. And then you can see that rudder post there at about 50 seconds in. Yeah, I'm swimming right down the middle of the wreck. In about 28, 30 seconds, you're right over top of the centerboard trunk uh, with all the railings to your right. And then if you go back a little further, the railings kind of stop. That's where we've got a couple dead eyes off to the right. And then you get to seeing that uh, the, the stern post and about half of the stern uh, there, you pour the stern into the port side of it. So that was just a you know a quick view of what's there. We we don't want to misrepresent this wreck. We talk about it a lot because we like I said we found it. Mac found it. We refound it, um, and you know was really excited about it. And uh, you know want to identify this thing and just need to dig it out and find clues that will help us determine what it really is. Huh. Now at about 37 seconds, you look and you can see the starboard side. What is that? Well, in the very bow, we've got a a heart which is like a dead eye. Instead of but instead instead of having three holes in a dead eye, a heart has one large hole that's kind of like a snap where they lay side by side, generally three widths, and go through one big hole. And then towards the stern, uh, across from those last couple of rudder posts, or uh, posts on, not the rudder posts, but the last couple of deck posts on the one side, on the opposite side, just a little bit of stern showing that side, starboard side. So, bring some of that out because there was a dead eye there last year. It still should be there because 
Now, we've kept a real good inventory of what we spotted and making sure it's been documented well so that nothing disappears. Yeah, I'd be very surprised to see that we've lost something. But it, it, to me, it's amazing just how much the sand moves around this part of the lake. Because I've dove on this already. I think we've done a couple dives on this year. And this looks different. And this is, So this is your dive from last week. Yeah, this was this past Sunday. After this, we had Sunday with uh, about 50, I think they said about 55 degree bottom 10. Thermocline was worried about uh, 53 feet. And they went from probably in the high 70s down to 55 degrees. It was refreshing. Everybody, well, there was one diver who dove it dry, but uh, two of us dove it wet. And I had four minutes on my first dive, a few minutes of bottom time. Um, in my former John wetsuit. And at the end of the 40 minutes, I was getting kind of chilly. But as soon as I got back up through the thermocline, you know, flooded the suit a little bit, warmed myself up, and hung out there for a few minutes with a safety hang. What I do is I generally dive nitrox using an air table. So I'm being very conservative on an old fat out of shape guy. So I take the, the advantage I can get. I don't look like an excellent dive. So this looks to be maybe 50 feet? Uh, yeah, I would at least 30. Uh, probably more than that, but yeah, at least 30. It might have been 50 because from where I was, you could see a lot more of the wreck. So, yeah. Now, did uh, did Bob and Kurt go out with you on this? Uh, yeah, they did. They were out there. Okay. Because I know they were planning on going out, and it seemed so I didn't know if everybody went to the same place or not. Excellent. Now, Mac, did you get any diving in this week? Yeah, but not not the kind you guys did. You did some skydiving? Well, I got Oshkosh was uh, during the weekend, which was a lot of fun. Then we did Summerfest over at Ottawa, and then we went up to uh, Chicagoland skydiving to got jumps in on Tuesday and Wednesday. And then kayaking was today. So tomorrow, hopefully, if the weather is good, is either powered parachutes or playing with helicopters. So we'll find out what happens tomorrow based on the weather. Then diving next week. <laughs> then diving next week. Yeah. Wow, you got to be having withdrawal. I mean, you, you should be all dried out by now. Yeah, but the other items give you a little bit of adrenaline too, so I'm coping. You're coping. Just adrenaline transfer. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't dive this last week, and I I thought about it, but I had company coming over, and it just didn't all work out. So missed out on that. Well, we'll have to try again this Sunday. This Sunday might be good. I just gotta. I've got my. Pardon me. I was going to say, we may need a couple more boats or at least another boat. Yeah. I'll have to, we'll have to look at something. I'm, I'm not sure what I'm diving this weekend. I know Bob's going out Saturday, and it sounds like you might be doing Saturday and Sunday. And Yeah, yeah I'm going to try to get up to Highland and do some dives on Saturday. After the preserve meeting, we're probably going to dive in the Highland Saugatuck area, and then Sunday be back down on Max Rick if the weather allows. Now, you've got a board meeting this Saturday, correct? That's your yes, office. there is a Southwest Michigan Underwater Preserve. It's actually an open meeting. It's a full membership meeting, but uh, we're really trying to make sure all the board members are there so we can get some uh, organization and effect some changes on the board. Excellent. And you've had some good publicity the last couple of weeks? Yeah. Uh, Vice President Ken Fagerman put out uh, a re- updated press release on the preserve uh, wanting to work max rec and you know doing the initial survey from their perspective and everything so uh, they've uh, i guess validated mac everything that we had done last year and uh, are continuing to pick up where we left off and add some i won't say permanent markers but some uh, temporary markers onto the wreck so we have some fixed points for measuring and we want to get some more accurate measurements than what we took last year. We just kind of got some numbers to sketch it out and video it so people we could ask some, answer some general questions. But now we want to get down into doing some more detailed documentation, like how big is the windlass and you know how wide is the head on the anchor, the flukes on the anchor, that type of thing, so we can try to identify as much as possible. Well, it would be nice to get some exact measurements, too, if you had enough people yeah. to be able to plot out exactly where are the dead eyes and the hearts, yep. uh, kind of like we were talking before the show, and that gives us a better idea of, you know, if it's a single-masted or two-masted. 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. And as we get more people involved, you know, and people get comfortable being on this wreck, then uh, it'll be easier for them to be able to help us when we start to do the excavation and we start moving sand because that will definitely, the, the visibility goes gets pretty bad as you're moving sand. And if you're comfortable with a wreck and know how to navigate your way around and, you know, it'll make you a lot more comfortable visibility because it's in on you and you got to go up 10 or 15 feet to see where you are to know, okay, this is where I was working. I know how the wreck's laid out. You know, you pick up one landmark or another landmark and you can easily find your way back to the uh, surface line. So the kind of question still remains, what's under the sand? What's under the sand? We know there's lots of wood under the sand. It's a question of how far under. And one of my goals this week, if we can get the pump out there, is to make a water jet. I actually have got the water jet, and I want a water jet down behind the centerboard trunk and in front of the centerboard trunk and see if we can hit the, uh, the sole of the ship, hit the keel, and determine just how deep the keel is. Now give us an idea if it's you know if it's flayed out and all laying in the bottom or if it's still in a kind of a hole shape. Right, and then you could start going from side to side and met, compare those measurements, you know, to see exactly how flat it is on on one side or both sides, or if it's still if the hull is still intact. We know it's split out of the bow um, because of where the anchor is and what the anchor is laying on. Uh, mm-hmm. One of my questions is when I'm looking at the damage to that windlass. You know, how much of the bow got pushed back? And the fact that we've never seen anything in the bow between those that first post and the uh, the bow pulpit there, uh, that's another area I'd like to open up and try to get some idea of, you know, is the bow on the port side split open like the bow on the starboard side is? Because that will also help with determining the measurement. I mean, how far back did this that bow pulpit get pushed two feet, 10 feet, 12 feet, 15 feet. Well, it makes all, a big difference in your measurements. Also, some of that damage should help us say how it went down. Yeah. You know, did, it, did it go down bow first, flat, stern? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if it went down bow first, you know, did it go down nose heavy, straight down, or did it kind of glide path down and then skid along the bottom for a while and, you know, dig itself into the bottom. Yeah. Which would give us an idea if we have a debris field. Right, if there's a debris for. field behind it, because there's an awful lot of zebra mussel growth behind it, and generally they just don't grow on the bottom unless they've got something to attach to to get started. Yeah, there, we, we do have, uh, when we have had some high visibility, you kind of get drawn off the wreck to see what these other patches are, and so far they've appeared just to be zebra mussels. Uh, I did mark something, but I think it's a tree stump, so I don't know if a uh, it really is a tree stump or if it's just some worn wood from the wreck. And that's yeah, off, we, that's we off. have to back and find that. Uh, that there should be a marker on it. I think I put a reflector on it. Okay. That, that's well, uh, on the port side about 25 feet off, almost even with the stern. Okay. We'll have to get out there and take a look at that. Uh, we're One of the divers uh, we're talking about Sunday, if he can make it, uh, wants to bring an underwater metal detector with him. And they're going to do some scanning outside the wreck to see if we can pick up anything that might have been uh, rigging or anything like that. That uh, you know, what metal is lying outside the wreck? Yeah. Well, we've got a um, it's a single anchor that we've got that we've identified. But shouldn't there be a second? Um, it would not surprise me to find a second, uh, but there's no guarantee that it's going to be there. I mean, the anchor we found is all wrapped around the windlass and then feeding on out and through. Um, if it was a second anchor, it's not feeding through the hawse pipe. Yeah. So it makes me wonder if it was really there or if they were just going with a single anchor on this. You know, one of the other big questions we've got is, was this still a schooner when it went down or had it been cut down and was it being used as a schooner that had been converted into a barge? True. Which so, we should be able to tell that by, if they cut it down, there should be an even cut where the mast is. Right, or the mast may be completely gone. They may have unstepped the mast, Okay. you know, and, and taken it out. So, again, it's one of those, let's move some sand and see what shows up. Now, if it had been uh, turned into a barge, that would explain why there might not be a record of it. Uh, yes and no. You, you would think if it were a barge, 
you'd have a better chance of the ship that was towing it reporting losing a barge because there should have been survivors from the main ship. But, you know, it's possible that as a barge, it was an undocumented barge, you know, and if it went down before they started having registrations, you know, and papers, there'd be no papers to surrender. So, you know, you may not have heard much about it. Again, if it went down in the early 1800s or prior to the Civil War, you know, there's very little documentation for wrecks or, you know, newspaper articles or anything in this area prior to the Civil War. I mean, you think about it, in 1812, when the War of 1812 broke out, the city of Chicago was nothing more than a fort in the wilderness that had 40 people in it. St. Joseph was bigger than Chicago in, 19, in 1812. Yeah, that is amazing. 20, 30 years later is not that long. And here in the 1840s, you know, 1850s, 40 years later, 50 years later is the Civil War. So it's a, a real challenge. I mean, all the signs we see so far indicate that it was an early 1800s build. But again, the centerboard trunk will help us with some of that. So that sounds like a good spot to look at. I'm excited. I, I, it, like you, people seeing the video, it's not an amazing wreck. It's not like we found the Chikora or anything, but certainly certainly something. Yeah, the Chikora is out there to be found. I, I, I've made the comment before. I'm willing to bet that there's fishermen fishing on the Chikora right now who don't know that it's the Chikora. They've got a good fishing spot, and they've got something coming up off the bottom where the fish are hiding, but they just don't know it's the Chikora. Now, there should be some way of, uh, you know, using Google or something, or I, w- I wonder if we could uh, subpoena GPS records, because you, fig- you, fig- you think all those fishermen have cell phones, so we should be able to, if you could get those GPS tracking information, you should be able to plot densities. Those densities should take you to where shipwrecks or objects in the bottom are going to be. Oh. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're not the government. Yeah. Just need to get out a really good set of binoculars, I guess. Yeah, or get the get the Coast Guard or the military to do some Great Lakes tours and uh, run a little sonar when they're coming and going. <laughs> no, that's probably dreaming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think I think somebody's somebody's fishing on it and somebody's found it and just hasn't put two and two together. Yeah, well, I'll tell you guys later where it's at, Dan. What's that, Mac? I'll tell you guys where it's at later. Okay, please do. Okay, we can. We know a lot of people can tell us where it's not. <laughs> you know, Ralph Wilbanks, uh, he didn't come up with anything this year. And from what I understand, neither did Dave Trotter. So there's a lot more area that's been covered where it's not. Well, wouldn't it be nice to be able to do a little bit better coordination between all these different groups searching so we could not look where we've already looked? Oh, vested interest. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, one, you know, one step at a time. So. Okay. Let me see here. I don't even know if I, I so we we got a let's see not that joke. Uh, here we go. So Max, you, you're not getting out this weekend. You're talking about doing it next weekend. I'll be more inclined starting Monday. I jump buddy and other pilot. He he goes back to work Monday, so I can go back to the water. <laughs> okay, I'm just making some edits on this joke. Are we ready? Are you think you're? We think we're ready for it. Well, chat room's gotten awful quiet, so I guess we better give it to them and see how they react. Of course, we didn't have Dave this week. That could be why the chat room's so quiet. Yeah, that's, that's usually it. Without Dave, it, it does tend to be get awful quiet in there. Are you saying he's an instigator? Is that what you just said? Uh, no, that's not what I said. I've called him a lot of things, but not an instigator. <laughs> he's not that big spoon in the pot being stirred, is he? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I, 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 that's one description. Okay, so here we go. A diver who had just moved to Wyoming from Ohio walks into a bar and orders three mud. He sits at the back of the room, drinking a sip out of each one in turn. When he finished them, he comes back to the bar and orders three more. The bartender approaches and tells the diver, you know, a mud goes flat after I draw it. It would taste better if I if you bought one at a time. The diver replies, well, you see, I have two brothers, one in Arizona, the other in Colorado. 
when we all left home in Ohio, we promised we'd be drink uh, that we'd drink this way to remember the days when we drank together. So I'm drinking one beer for each of my brothers and one for myself. The bartender admits it's a nice custom and leaves it there. The diver becomes a regular at the bar and always drinks the same way. He orders three mugs and drinks them in turn. One day, the diver comes in and only orders two mugs. All the regulars take notice and fall silent. When he comes back to the bar for the second round, the bartender says, I didn't want to intrude on your grief, but I wanted to offer my condolences for your loss. The, da- the diver looks quite puzzled for a moment. Then a light dawns in his eyes and he laughs. Oh, no, everybody's just fine, he explains. It's just that my wife and I joined the Mormon church and I had to quit drinking. Hasn't affected my brothers, though. I like that one. <laughs> yeah, that, some people who some regulars who probably would definitely appreciate that. <laughs> I, I I do think so. So, until next week, go out there and get wet and stay safe. And remember, no new taxes were incurred while we were doing tonight's podcast. As far as we know. <laughs> as far as we know. Scoop Obsessed is recorded live August 2nd, 2013. Actually, I meant to say Scoop Obsessed episode 124 is recorded live August 2nd, 2013. 2013? 2013. Why did I put, why? I, ch- I literally, wow. I literally changed the date to 2013. I'm, I'm working on plans at work, if you can't tell. We're okay, in the future now. Good. All right. Uh, uh, it's, we're in the Twilight Zone. Yeah. <laughs> okay, here we go. Take Take nine.